Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. January the 23rd is the 70th anniversary of the death of George Orwell at the age of 46. To mark the occasion, I interviewed Richard Bradford, the author of a new biography entitled Orwell, Man of Our Time. I began by asking him why we need another biography of Orwell, given that he specifically requested that none be written, and six have appeared already. Um, well, good question, since, as I'm sure you're aware, they've always, they're, they're already about, what, five or six. Um, mine is different because um, you might have seen from the blurb and the publicity material it's not a standard biography, although it's chronological and it does tell you the story of his life. What it also does is to project um, his experiences and his ideas and his hypotheses into the present day. Um, I'm not saying that he was, um, you know, a, a soothsayer in the sense that he could predict everything that is happening now. But there are some striking resemblances between what he saw and intuited and diagnosed in the world of the 1930s and 40s and what we today are encountering. Why do you feel it's necessary to try and make Orwell relevant in that way, given that his relevance doesn't seem to be in any doubt? I mean, after all, my children who are of school age are studying Animal Farm in 1984 at school. Um, uh, the term Orwellian has entered the English language. 1984 is frequently referenced when discussing regimes like North Korea and China. Um, you know, some of his best lines are quoted in current debates in Britain and elsewhere. He surely doesn't need defending in the way that you seem to be doing. Um, well, I don't know about that, because, as you say, North Korea uh, has been regarded as uh, a version of 1984. But since we're keen very much so to do deals with China these days, we seem to forget that while uh, the Cold War, uh, the term which Orwell coined, is sort of over, um, and that China is... Um, competing on the same basic terms with all other capitalist countries, that everything in China, including the so-called uh, private industries, is controlled by the party. It's almost as though while they banned 1984, and even when uh, it was made available, they rewrote it, they also used it as instru an instruction manual. For example, in the Rongcheng region, it looks as though They've taken up where Orwell left off, because with his telescreens in 1984, you were watching the television, and the television was watching you. It didn't have a night screen, but it could uh, detect bodily movements 
and almost read your, the possibilities of what you were about to do in the middle of the night. In Rongcheng, the Chinese tested a, a very sophisticated system, uh, uh, system, not just of facial recognition, but of lip reading. So if anyone within their homes or outside their homes uttered anything that was slightly seditious, they would be deducted credit points. And eventually, they would find that if they tried to um, buy a uh, train ticket at the station, if they lost enough credit points, they would be denied the opportunity to move. And it's amazing the parallels with 1984. But we, we still deal with these people. So your argument isn't so much that we're in danger of forgetting Orwell. That's not a risk. Your argument is that um, we're ignoring the moral and political import of his work. To an extent, yes. And uh, we're also ignoring certain aspects of Orwell that, uh, shall we say, the middle liberal left tend to keep quiet about. One example of this is, uh, I mean, I, I did an article which came out this weekend in the Irish Independent, which is called Did Orwell Predict Brexit? In his, his several works that he wrote in the 1940s, uh, The English People and others, uh, he looked at how, in his view, the English working classes were insular and xenophobic. And he said that even the Tommies who fought in World War I tended to feel more sympathetic towards their enemies than the French. And he also said that the bourgeoisie loathed England. And in 1947, he wrote an article called Towards European Unity. And Churchill uh, has been incorrectly regarded as the first to predict the common market of the European Union. Wrong. Orwell did it first at length. He said that the dead empires of Europe would come together and form a European Union. And he also predicted that the one nation least likely to be enthusiastic about this would be Britain, because it dreaded uh, losing its imperial legacy. Sound familiar? I wanted to take issue with your attempt to um, harness Orwell to the anti-Brexit cause. Um, I've always thought of Orwell as um, someone who would have been sympathetic to Brexit, um, partly because of his um, patriotism that uh, runs like a thread throughout all his work, but which is particularly mm -hmm. apparent in The Lion and the Unicorn, um, partly because of his kind of scathing for the Europeanized liberal intelligentsia, whom he famously said take their recipes from Paris and their opinions from Moscow, and his kind of scathing for the type of English liberal um, who loathes their own country. Doesn't this suggest that he wouldn't have had any time for the avid liberal uh, Remainers who seem to kind of loathe everything about Great Britain and England in particular, uh, that that would have been completely at odds with his affection, uh, his love of, of, of the English. Uh, you're probably right to an extent. But if you look 
very closely at 1984. Um, the uh, routine interpretation is that um, it's an allegory, if you like, well, not an allegory, a straightforward representation of uh, Soviet totalitarianism. And that uh, the proles uh, are the individuals or the, the mass of individuals uh, in the Soviet bloc um, who are repressed. To a large extent, that's true. But there's an exchange between O'Brien and Winston Smith, where uh, Smith seems to think that eventually the proles will um, rise up and overthrow their oppressors. Uh, now, Orwell has one eye on what might happen uh, in the Soviet bloc, but he has another eye on what is happening in the UK. Because if you look at his journalism through the 1940s, it's not that he dislikes the working classes, but he begins... You, you can see a, a degree of scepticism regarding his view of what the working classes are able to do. And I think he carries this into 1984. So there's there's also a sense in which the proles of 1984 are, to an extent, a a reflection of his view of the British working classes as largely apathetic and feckless. There's no doubt um, that uh, he felt ambivalent about the British working class. Um, But throughout his work, particularly his journalism, um, he, he, he sort of sees the uh, philistinism of the British working class and of the English more generally as a double-edged sword uh, and sees a benefit of it, which is that um, something like fascism um, is never going to be, is never going to take root uh, in in Britain because of this kind of general scepticism, this kind of (laughs) good-humoured scepticism towards any grand narratives, any big political ideas. uh, and he, well, he, 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 but, but, but wouldn't he have therefore valued um, the scepticism that was particularly pronounced amongst the less educated sections of the British population towards the kind of federal project, which, after all, takes on some of the shape of some of the kind of uglier aspects of the um, multinational nation state depicted in 1984. Um, you know, there is a kind of totalitarian strain to the European Union, which surely Orwell would have been sceptical of and would have celebrated and welcomed the scepticism towards it amongst the British public. Yes and no. I mean, there's a passage also in um, one piece of journalism where he talks about when he was in Marseille, he was on the boat coming back from Burma, and uh, he's standing on the steps of uh, a British-owned bank and talking to a few of his fellow Brits, who aren't really working class, otherwise they wouldn't be in Marseille, but they're uh, somewhere between the lower middle classes and the working classes. They've been shipped over to work as clerks in a British bank in Marseille. And it's in the news that uh, these two anarchists, uh, Sacco and Van Zetti, uh, are being taken to the electric chair in the States. And there's an enormous um, demonstration in Marseille. And Orwell admires the French for what they're capable of demonstrating about, whereas the two people he's talking to at the front of the English bank saying, but surely they deserve it, don't they? And Orwell is appalled at this. 
So, yeah, there is a sense in which there is a, a sort of sentimental attachment in him to England. He liked fishing. He liked the countryside and so on and so on. But there's also a degree of loathing as well. My reading of Orwell, which, which um, you may disagree with, is that in the kind of ongoing schism within the English national character between the sort of round-headed Puritans and the um, uh, hedonistic Cavaliers, uh, even though Orwell in his own private life was quite ascetic and self-denying and seemed to exhibit some of the disapproval for the kind of Saturnalia uh, of the upper classes. Nonetheless, in, in, in um, essays like The Art of Donald McGill and uh, his celebration of good English murders, his affection for the news of the world. In The Art of the Donald McGill, he, he writes about the overwhelming vulgarity, the smuttiness, the ever-present obscenity of seaside postcards and seems to celebrate yeah. that. And at one stage, he contrasts Sancho Panza with Don Quixote and seems to side with the Sancho Panzas of this world, the unofficial self, the voice of the belly protesting against the soul. Yeah. And in all of that, he, yeah. seem, he, seems to, he seems to be siding with the fun-loving, gambling British working class in all their kind of Saturnalian, Falstaffian glory against the kind of Puritans, the boiled rabbits of the left, the vegetarians, the sandal wearers, the Corbins of this world who would, you know, uh, rather, uh, who feel more ashamed of standing up to the national anthem than stealing from the poor box. And in that respect, wouldn't he be on the side of those working class voters in the Red Wall who sided with... Boris Johnson rather than Corbyn at the last general election and who voted leave in 2016. I suppose in a way you have to detect or you can detect a degree of hypocrisy um, in Orwell because once um, Animal Farm had been published and he shot from the middle of nowhere. I mean, he was known within the literary circles of London, but he became almost overnight famous he enjoyed um, dining out with the Astors and he enjoyed those restaurants in London where you could have food that wasn't rationed. And he liked knocking around with the literati and, uh, you know, his old friends from Eton uh, 20 years earlier, who he claimed in several articles to have despised. So, yes, there are, there are two aspects of Orwell. But in, in the Road to William Pier, he... He offers this portrait of uh, a woman. He thinks she's probably in her 20s, but she looks as though she might be 60. Um, she's wearing rags and she's got a stick in her hand and she's trying to free God knows what from a drain. And he presents the expression on her face and her posture as that of weary despair. And you know from his description that she can do nothing about her situation and won't even try to do anything about the situation. The message is, they've given up. And it's almost as though he's inviting us to contrast this with another, pa another passage at the beginning of Homage to Catalonia, where he's on the train again, and he's going through southwest France, and all of the people in the train are like him, going to uh, fight for the government. And every time they pass a field of farm labourers. They stand 
facing the train to give the anti-fascist salute. And you know which lot he, he favours. So, yeah, there's a, there, I, I see the point in what you're saying, but there's another aspect of all as well. In his diary, when he was writing The Road to William Pier, there's a passage that he didn't put in the book. He states in the book that uh, a lot of the people he meets are members of the Communist Party, are socialists and so on, but the meetings they go to are very poorly attended. And in the diary, he recalls this account of a meeting in Burnley uh, Town Hall, attended by more than 700 people, 700 really enthusiastic people. And the person they're listening to, who they favour most of all, is Mosley of the British Union of Fascists. He, that meeting outnumbers anything that can be brought together for, by the socialists or the communists. And he's dismayed by this. Reminds me of Farage a bit. Ah, you see, I wanted to pick you up on that. You quote uh, favourably in the book um, Orwell criticising people for bandying about the word fascist far too indiscriminately as a smear to discredit oh, yeah. their opponents. <laughs> and yet you yourself in the yeah, book anyone compare either. Farage to Oswald Mosley, the the um, European research group, the kind of pro-Brexit wing of the Conservative Party, um, the Brexit Party, UKIP, Boris Johnson. They all get compared by you to Oswald Mosley. Aren't you doing precisely what Orwell cautioned us against doing? Well, yes, I am, but I don't actually use the word fascist. I sort of imply that they're like them. At one point you say, I do not know what will happen on the 31st of January 2020. For our American listeners, that's the date at which we're due to leave the European Union. But I will not revise this sentence once I do, because as I write, this country is undergoing a bout of two plus two equals five that outdoes Mosley's bamboozling and the enforced self-delusions of 1984. Um, And the, the implication is that there is a kind of thread connecting Mosley and the British Union of Fascists with the Brexit Party, UKIP and the decision to leave the European Union? Oh, yeah. Well, I think there is. I, I mean, at, at, at the close of 1984, I mean, there, there been a lot of um, uh, misinterpretations of what doublethink actually involves. Um, when Trump uh, was elected, uh, sales of 1984 shot up by something like 4,000% because the American population, or at least the liberal left, East Coast uh, element of the American population, thought that uh, they were going to be run by Big Brother and that Doublethink was going to be, um, you know, the ideology of the next four years. But as, as I point out in the book, Trump isn't a proponent of Doublethink because he's too thick. Uh, as Orwell makes it clear, doublethink is a very complex planned procedure. But there's also an element of doublethink that people tend to overlook. If you like, the victims of doublethink, or, or rather the participants of doublethink, the ones who swallow it, if you like, are happy to be lied to. They know they're being lied to, but they don't mind being lied to. And in my view, this is, to get back to your uh, point, this is an aspect of Mosley that does link him with UKIP, the Brexit Party, the European Research Group, the uh, alt-right Tory Party, uh, the Leavers, and so on and so on. 
they tell they tell lies you know the, the fame of 350 million on the side of the bus but they seem to assume that everyone who swallows the lies won't mind being lied to in 1984 the proles no, the proles know they're being lied to but they don't care well i i i, I would take issue with um your description of the 350 million figure on the side of the bus as a lie um it's just i think an example of the kind of hyperbole that typifies general election electoral contest the the day after the uh referendum on good morning britain farage actually said in those exact words it is a lie well it's not a lie because um uh, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to particularly really <laughs> to get this argument, wrong, but, but well, he was because um, uh, we do um, contribute about twenty billion pounds a year to the EU budget, which breaks down at actually slightly more than three hundred fifty million pounds a week. Okay, we get some of it back, so it was an elision of the gross and the net. But that kind of hyperbole, I think, is typical of election campaigns, and people on all sides are guilty of it. But I guess my my um, my reservation about trying to bring Orwell into the Brexit debate um, and claim him as someone who foresaw the rise of the populist right in Europe and America. You mentioned Viktor Orban as well as uh, Donald Trump. My my problem with that is that um, surely Orwell's relevance today, the reason his, his lessons, his writings are so urgent, is because is the authoritarianism of the left um, in the in the emergence of cancel culture of mobbing on social media um, surely we see not only the same intolerance for dissent that Orwell himself suffered when he published homage to Catalonia uh, and Animal Farm um, uh, but uh, something he himself railed against and condemned surely you know um, it, it was his anticipation of uh, the way in which the left would uh, harness technology uh, to stifle free speech to punish dissenters uh, that that's what makes him uh, such a relevant figure in the contemporary world nothing to do with brexit which seems a bit parochial to be to be frank this is a global phenomenon. You sort of touch on this in the book, and you and you and you condemn um, the left-wing mobbing of Roger Scruton in one passage. But to my mind, you don't make nearly enough of that. There's there's far too much kind of condemnation of the populist right, but not nearly enough of the kind of authoritarian left. I don't know. I mean, I I I, I think I'm fairly even-handed in uh, giving a kicking both to the left and the right if you don't mind that rather mixed metaphor, with hands and feet. <laughs> um, in Animal Farm, for example, again, th- that, that book is open to numerous misinterpretations. There's a, there's a very interesting passage at the beginning where um, Old Major is offering a vision of the future. And as you know, everyone knows, he's a sort of hybrid part Lenin, part Marx, and so on and so on. And the animals are transfixed. And two rats get in, and they're transfixed. And two dogs notice the rats and go after them. So they then have to have a party debate on whether wild animals are equal to farm animals and domestic animals. 
And again, it's the left trying to accommodate its general principles of what everyone should be and do with the complexities of the human race and the weirdness of individuality. And they have votes, and they try to reach some sort of agreement, and uh, the votes are fixed by the cats and the dogs and so on and so on and so on. And there are lots of examples of this. And what Orwell is saying is that you can't impose a set of formula, however apparently benign, upon individuals and try to suggest that well, this will improve your lives because individuals are, by definition, different. So I, I think I'm fairly even-handed. In the book, I think you link that passage in 1984 to Orwell's commitment to free speech, the um, irreducible variety of human beings and the need to protect a space for freedom of expression. Um, uh, but I guess one of the things I was disappointed by in the book is that you don't seem as alert, perhaps as you should be, to the fact that the threat to free speech today uh, come from the left more so than they do from the right. We saw a good example of this recently. Sheffield University um, is now paying um, its students something like £10 an hour to um, inform on other students who they deem sort of insufficiently woke. I look in the, in the epilogue, which is, I suppose, to say, you know, what would he make of today specifically? What he'd loathe is the notion of safe spaces in universities and the banning of people just because you don't agree with what they have to say to you. The, the, the words behind his statue on front of the, front of the BBC, even, sorry, I, I can't quote them verbatim, but what they amount to is even if you don't like it, you've got to listen to it. Yeah. So, yes, he would have, he, 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 he loathed that and he would, he would loathe it today. What else would he loathe about global politics today? Um, I go for radical Islam. I think you'd be appalled by the way in which the left and the liberal politics tolerates what amounts to a form of fascism. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's right. I guess um, I think he also would have loathed um, the intolerance for dissent within the European Union, um, liberal authoritarianism. Uh, the you may be right, the... and perhaps I should have given a little bit more space to that, but uh, I suppose it was just a, a, a reflection of my own um, biases, affiliations, prejudices, and so on and so on. And, I mean, one thing that we haven't mentioned, and you're probably running out of time as well, is that I suppose in, in terms of the things he predicted, he, predi he predicted rather unwittingly and sadly anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Yes, because he was an appalling anti-Semite. Yeah, you, you do deal with his anti-Semitism. I mean, you, you examine the, that particular charge and um, conclude that, yes, he was guilty of anti-Semitism, but what distinguished him from other anti-Semites is that he was aware of it and he tried to do something about it. He wasn't yes. in denial about uh, it. it, it he, in, in, in the remarkable article called Anti-Semitism in Britain, he ostensibly projects, projects his outwards to a sort of assessment he's done of anti-Semitism among people he's, he's, he's spoken to in London. 
But when you, when you boil it down to the questions he asks in the article, he's asking them of himself. And uh, it's, it comes close to a form of self-loathing. He knows it's difficult to understand, let alone get rid of uh, what he knows of about himself. But at least, in a way, he's being honest about it, which you can't find in the Labour Party. Do you think that honesty, that willingness to grapple with hard truths and contradictions, uh, both within himself and within his political positions, is one of the things which distinguishes him as a writer and as a political journalist, and one of the reasons he has endured where his contemporaries have been forgotten? Yes. Um, as, I, as I say, he's, there, are, there are contrasts and con- contradictions throughout his writings and what we know of uh, how the way he behaved and thought. And he, he didn't try to conceal them or smooth them over. When he could, he dealt with them and confronted them very often. So, yes, I mean, I think, I think that's why he has endured. There aren't many writers like that. They present themselves as they want people to see them rather than as they are. Finally, can you think of any contemporary journalists or writers um, who uh, have inherited Orwell's mantle and are worthy of being compared to him, who have his kind of political foresight as well as his honesty? Well, there is one individual, and I, I, I don't want to damn him with faint praise. Let's say he writes for The Spectator and The Sunday Times. Rod Little. Yeah. And, and he, oh, I see. So, yeah, but, but I would have thought that he's the kind of um, xenophobic little Englander that you would have uh, instinctively disliked. But you actually see him as a as a successor I, to I, Orwell I, I, in some regard. I, I, yeah, I, I see parallels between him and Orwell. He's painfully honest about things that people would rather try and forget about. Well, um, on that note of um, agreement, Richard, perhaps we should uh, conclude <laughs> this uh, interview. But thank you very much for talking to Quillette. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.